Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hey, welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thank you for joining us. This week we are joined by two incredible, that's without exaggeration, authors, journalist Evan Osnos and historian and Lord Kane's expert Zach Carter. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget, you got to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh, and I have a great story later to tell you, James, about HelloFresh. Please check out their link in the show notes, and we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, we are doing uh, taping this show uh, just a few hours before Joe Biden's State of the Union. We don't expect anything new or different, but we ought to tell our listeners that and if they hear it after the State of the Union. I think we have other things to talk about. And I want to start with you. You had a fascinating and important interview in Vox. Uh, many of our listeners have heard it, but it's really, it, it's about the peril the Democrats face. Tell us about it. Well, uh, okay, uh, the people who listen to this show regularly, a lot of the stuff that I talked about in the Vox piece, you and I had talked about previous. So it was a distillation of the thought. And it, literally everybody, and I, I know that sounds like it's an exaggeration, but it is really not, said, we're not talking to people. We're not talking the, the language that that people hear. We're, we're using jargon, and it's and it's killing us because people were getting it back in focus groups. They were getting it back every kind of way, and of course, anybody is scared to say anything because if you do, they'll cancel you. And I figured out that being seventy-seven this October, there's not much they can cancel me from. And I, I, I put it, I put it out there. I, I conscientiously, Vox was a, you know, great site to run it on, and uh, it it had the desired effect. I'll say that. Uh, I, th- I think the effect even exceeded what I expected. I thought it would have a good effect. It, it even exceeded that. I think people were just ready to hear it. Well, it, let me everywhere. Let me tell you why I think it's so important: is your involvement, your credentials, your credibility. Brett Stevens, a conservative columnist, had a New York Times columnist week, and which he, he touched on some of the same things in a different manner. And he defines liberalism basically through the woke eyes and says there's going to be a backlash, uh, which as a conservative, he probably welcomes. But he would probably object to us defining conservatism through the prism of Marjorie Greene or even Josh Hawley. But you're not coming at it from the standpoint of someone who who, who doesn't mind uh, if if this is destructive to liberals or Democrats, but someone who cares about these issues. And I think that's what makes it important, uh, because a lot of people are getting hit with this woke rap 
a lot of Democrats very unfairly. Correct. And, and, and a lot of liberals. <laughs> James Carville is one. Yep. All right. Don't. This is not part of our value system. And a, a, many, many people feel that way, that that silencing people and that kind of stuff is 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 that that's to, to us. That's illiberal. Uh, you know, I don't know. Everybody, the, the definitions keep changing. But you just knew that people, they were talking a lot of Democrats, a lot of Democrat elites, particularly a lot of them on cable TV, used this faculty lounge jargon. And no one likes it. And it, and it also, it, it's signaling to you that you're different than they are. It, it, yes, the whole thing comes across very preachy and, it, and, it's, and it's almost condescending. If, if you don't, if you're not there, if you're not with the hip, you know, lower Manhattan crowd of, you know, you, 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 you're Adams, Morgan, or whoever the hell stay now, you, you're not part of the, the club. And people, if you tell people you can't be part of the club, they're not going to like your club. You know, I tell my daughter, you know, she goes, when she went to LSU, she was in this big sorority, and they all were 5'8", and drove, you know, BMWs and you know, Rolexes. I said, all these other girls hate y'all. <laughs> well, James, you know? I think an impo important point is that being anti-woke and also being pro-racial justice, pro-police reform, pro-talking pro about the inequities of race and addressing them are not incompatible. Uh, black voters, as we saw in the election, are much more like Joe Biden or prefer Kam Kamala Harris than the squad. Yes, and 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 of course we we had we we had a, a woke Joe Biden matchup in Louisiana second, and it was a decisive win. People said exactly, and and the lines were drawn very distinctly and very clearly. And uh, you know it was AOC and Elizabeth Warren and Stacey Abrams, and you had you know Cedric Wichman and Jim Clyburn, and you know the kind of mayor of Baton Rouge, and. Uh, it, it it was instructive. It, it was an instructive result. It was a decisive result. The only reason that it was ten, a little more than ten points is it was turnout was sixteen point six percent. If turnout would have been normal, it'd have won about twenty five points. Well, you know, there's a couple other things though, because it really is. Anyone who hasn't read it, go to Vox uh, and it's the interview. Is it Sean Illig? Is that his name? Who did the interview with you? I, uh, Illing. I, Illing. I, I, L -L Illing. It, it, it's really a. Uh, it's James uh, at his best, except when he's on uh, War Room uh, uh, politics. <laughs> um, but you also elaborated on, as you know, something that just drives me crazy, and I think is inexplicable. The Democrats get targeted and hurt by their fringe, defunding the police, socialism, though very few favor that. But Republicans, for some reason, uh, don't get hurt as much by their far more dangerous and lethal crazies, the Greens uh, of the world. Why is that? You know, I, I, it, you and I, I, I can't say I tore my head out, hair out over it because I, I, I don't have any hair to tear out. I, I, I think our faculty lounge messaging interferes, and we were not mean enough. All right? By that, I, I mean, it, why do they let this guy keep talking and interrupting when, the, like, six people let, have come forward and says that he was aware of molestation that was going on on the wrestling team? And we should remind him every time. 
and as opposed to you know, I don't care if Maxine tells him to shut up. I'm not a. I wish he'd shut up. Too. Yeah, we're, we're talking about Jim the, Jordan here, the Ohio Congress. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. The, the congressman from Ohio, and you, you know, there's no reason that that guy should just talk freely without paying it, but being held accountable. I really believe that, and we should, we need to do more of that. Let me let me go into that, and then and then you can uh, talk about it because he is you know one of the three or four most powerful. Republicans in the House of Representatives, the right-wing Ohio congressman who is on the attack all the time, is talking about virtue and ethics and all of that. The issue that James is talking about is he was the assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State some 20 or more years ago when there was widespread, pervasive sexual assault on athletes by the Ohio State athletic uh, team physician. Six wrestlers, six wrestlers said they told Jim Jordan about it, and he basically did nothing. That's the second most compelling reason why I have suspicions about him here, beyond suspicions. The first is that many, 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 many years ago, I was on a great wrestling team, uh, and I know that if there had been any sexual abuse by the trainer or by the doctor or anything else, we would have known about it. It's impossible to imagine that going on without a coach. And yet, James, somehow it happened a year or two ago, and Jim Jordan just keeps going. There's that law firm, Perkins Cooey, that um, did a report. They didn't whitewash him. They just didn't mention him. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, it should be an ongoing scandal, as you said. Don't, the way that you, you do that is, is you just do it, right? If, 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 if what they do to everybody is something continuous loop feed on, on Biden wants to get rid of hamburgers. Of course, not true, but, but that more people think that Biden wants to get rid of hamburgers than know that Jim Jordan is tolerant of molestation. And we got to change that around. Anything else you want to talk about about that piece? Because it really is a great interview. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I, you know, I think I, I said what, I, what was on my mind, and I, I hope people read it. Uh, because it was a lot of years of experience that went into it. And, you know, it's a, it's sometimes it, when you see, you know, like they're saying at the airport, if you see something, say something. And I saw something because people keep telling me the same thing. And I, I think it, it's had a good immediate effect. Hopefully it'll have some long-term effect. But we need to we give the impression to people that we talk down to them not to them and that's not a good that's not the impression that you want to leave people with okay out there if you haven't read it uh you war room listeners it's vox uh interview with james carville ran a couple days ago you can still go get it uh and it really is worth reading james uh one other issue before we turn it over to some of our great guests um on wednesday uh, the uh, law enforcement, U.S. attorneys raided the office, or excuse me, the home, I guess, the residence of Rudy Giuliani, the president's great counsel, former mayor of New York City, one-time hero to America on the Ukrainian thing. Rudy may be in, as George Bush one time said, deep doo-doo. Well, there's some interesting things here. First of all, it, it previously... Uh, the DOJ under, under Trump wanted to issue the search warrant. It was stopped. 
They said, don't do this. It's right before an election. They're involved in this. Don't do it. So they stopped it. Not the career people, the political appointees. Then after the election, they went back. Because, you know, if you're going to have a search warrant against a guy like Rudy Giuliani, justice, you know, has to know about it. And still under the Trump administration, they said, no, you can't issue the search warrant. But what's obvious here is this was Merrick Garland's decision. And what's obvious is no judge is going to be very careful before signing that search warrant. I mean, it's just not going to like any normal search warrant where you're going to get, you know, based on information, believe there's drugs in here, something like that. So it, it, there's no way that this is not some really, really serious thing. No way. None. And it's it's not... It's not just the suspicion of why they raided uh, his uh, his residence. I, I guess it was his residence, wasn't it? I don't think he has an office in New York, or at least yeah, this wasn't. I think both. It. I think it was. Was both. it both? Uh, but but there's all sorts of other uh, you know incriminating charges against Rudy Giuliani on the Ukraine things. He dealt with some people who uh, are allegedly um, Soviet agents. Uh, he just. It's hard to believe the journey that Rudy Giuliani has taken, and you either have to accept the fact that something really, really has gone haywire, or he was a fraud to begin with. I, I, I lean more to the latter. Uh, I guess, but you know, I, it doesn't matter in a criminal law how you got there. Right. <laughs> it just matters where you end up, and this is obviously some some pretty serious stuff that's going on here. Well, also, and go ahead. I'm sorry, James. Go ahead. Once they get in his electronic devices, I'm telling them what they find. Yeah. This is not going to be the last of the Trump people who are going to suddenly face new difficulties with law enforcement, I suspect. Uh, no. Rudy, Rudy may be one of the more prominent ones, but, uh, but there are going to be others. Absolutely. Has Trump Absolutely. paid him yet? Do we know that? No. Can't worry about that. It's <laughs> the least to think I've worried about. All right. Well, again, uh, uh, Rudy, uh, you know, we hardly knew you. And uh, Reed Vox and James Carville. Hey, James, the price of peace, Zach Carter's opus on John Maynard Keynes, may be the most important and influential book on economics since Paul Samuelson's basic text. Zach, welcome, and it is just an extraordinary book. Keynes was perhaps the most influential economist, certainly the 20th century, maybe ever, but he was more than just an economist, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he, he was. Uh, thank you so much for having me. He was, I think, in a lot of ways, maybe the last major figure uh, from the in the lineage of the Enlightenment, capital L liberals, uh, as, as a philosopher. He's somebody whose ideas go well beyond uh, supply and demand and counter-cyclical spending and, and government budget deficits. Someone who's thinking about uh, what a good life and a good society uh, are and could be. Yeah. You know, the ebb and flows of Keynesian uh, policies are now back in favor, uh, but we sometimes overlook, or I did at least, the prescience that he had in that post-World War I disaster, the Treaty of Versailles, where Keynes really warned exactly what was going to happen that happened. 
the terrible economic uh, destruction it was going to wrought, the social disorder, and it would lead to war. And, and by the way, he saw an early, the early Hitler evil uh, when people like Walter Lippmann did not. Yes, I think if you if you go back to the end of World War One, which is where Keynes really makes his his name as as a public figure, uh, prior to the outbreak of World War One, he's he's just this philosopher who's got a lot of friends like Virginia Woolf, who are at that point not particularly accomplished writers and artists, but he's in charge of British war finance during during World War One, and he becomes deeply disillusioned with the British government and the the project of the of the British Empire. And he, he, he comes to believe that, that perhaps uh, Woodrow Wilson's view of World War I as a, a fight for democracy is something that could really redeem the violence of the previous four years. So he goes to the peace treaty negotiations at Paris in 1919, full of hope that, that the world can be redeemed, that we can turn the page on this terrible era of, of violence and destruction. And what he sees is uh, just, just horrifying to him. He, he believes that all of the victors are just incapable of establishing a reasonable system for economic cooperation after the war. They're, they're insisting upon unrepayable debts, uh, the United States insisting on, uh, on war debts from, from uh, Britain and France that are just astronomically high, and then Britain and France demanding astronomical reparations from the defeated Germany. And as a result of all this debt, None of the economies of Europe will be able to get back on their feet, and it, this will breed resentment and uh, and conflict and and ultimately authoritarian violence. And it it happens really very very quickly. Uh, you know, the, the rise of of Hitler takes about a dozen years, but there are political murders happening in Germany in 1921, 1922. Um, his his evaluation of what had gone wrong you know, the, the, his classic work, uh, The General Theory on Employment, uh, wasn't, I don't think it was published till 1936, but he really was, Keynes really was the godfather of FDR's New Deal. Intellectually, I, I'd say so. The, the, the trick with, with Keynes, though, is that he, he changes his mind on what the, the sort of foundations of economics are every three or four years. And he comes up with a new grand theory to explain everything that's wrong with the world and, and how to fix it. But throughout that, uh, that sort of theoretical evolution, he's giving a pretty consistent set of policy prescriptions. So by 1929, he is advocating for very large uh, government budget deficits and public work spending to lift the, the countries that are embroiled in the, in the Great Depression out of, out of the Depression. And this is ultimately what, what FDR does in the United States. And Keynes becomes totally enamored with, with FDR and with the American administration, which is unusual for him. He's, he's not somebody who really loves Americans. He, he doesn't like his time in the United States when he's on diplomatic missions. He thinks there aren't enough birds in our countryside and various other fussy things. Uh, but he, he, he thinks Roosevelt is really, uh, really a, a kind of almost magical persona because he's doing all of these things that Keynes thinks should be done that the governments in Europe just won't do. I'm going to turn this over to James, but just one final thought. He did go and he ridiculed the idea of laissez-faire uh, while not being, being totally anti-markets. But you, you quote a very you know, interesting observation you made. He said, the very idea of capitalism requires active state economic management. That really is the core of, of much of what he was talking about, at least by the late 20s and 30s, wasn't it? 
Yeah, I, I think at least uh, for myself, growing up in the 1980s and 1990s, I, I sort of learned economics as uh, this, this field where you, you have a naturally existing economy where people do commerce and trade, and then layered on top of that, after the emergence of this natural market, you have the, the unnatural or artificial government that, that can intervene or interfere with that market. And Keynes doesn't think that's right. He thinks that the, the basic stuff of the economy, including money itself, are, are tools of statecraft. And so to even have a market um, economy in any sense is, is that the market is, is almost sort of like an extension of, of the state, something that's fostered and managed by it. The question is not whether there's going to be state management of the economy, it's how you're going to manage it. And once you have that, that sort of framework intellectually, all sorts of policy possibilities open up. James. Okay, so, so Dave, you mentioned countercyclical. All right, I'm, I'm sitting here in South Mississippi, everywhere is help wanted. The McDonald's in South Mississippi is offering $50 just for an interview. I sold a multi-million dollar house in New Orleans in two days, right? And I am told by my economist friends, all of them pretty liberal, that we, we shouldn't worry. And, and so we're dumping a bucket load of whatever you want to call it, fiscal relief, stimulus, everything. What would Keynes think about Bidenomics, given the period that we're in right now? It's always tricky with Keynes to, to ask what he would think about uh, about the current moment because, of course, he changed his mind so many times over the course of his right. career. Uh, but I think the mature Keynes, you know, say 1932 to the end of his life in 1944, um, 1946, I'm sorry, um, he would look at this and say, you know, clearly we have a, a serious risk here of social collapse in the United States. You just had uh, a, a right-wing violent group uh, attempt to take over the government uh, by force in January. Um, you have this terrible pandemic, which has left people not only financially constrained, but, uh, but emotionally kind of isolated and, and frustrated for a very long period of time. And he would say that these are serious social problems that demand pretty aggressive government management. And the types of problems you can have from excess demand in the economy, from too much spending, too much money in everybody's pockets, these are problems like you know, inflation getting, getting a little out of hand. We might see price increases of like 5 or, or 6% when what the Fed is aiming for is, is say, 2%. And measured against you know, a slight increase in consumer prices, um, the survival of the political project in the United States would seem like a much more important goal to Keynes. Uh, you know, I think he would also look at, at other problems that we're facing. It's, it's not just the pandemic that we're looking at. It's not just this, this rise of authoritarianism. You have the threat of, of climate change. Uh, you have the deterioration of the relationship between the U.S. and China diplomatically. There's a series of crises, and, and Keynes was a philosopher of crisis. He, you know, he didn't look at the world of his time and say, I really want to find a way to justify deficit spending. He said, I want to avoid war and authoritarianism. And I think if you look at the problems the United States has today, spending a lot of money and maybe overshooting, it, it, just, seems, it just seems very difficult to see that uh, through Keynes's eyes as, uh, as, as a, a very serious risk to the social project. So, thank you. Uh, I've followed it. I know a little bit about economics, obviously not love, but... It looks like the, the, the Keynes was really in favor, and then something happened in the late 70s, 
And the, the stagflation and the thing was that Keynes didn't address this. It was antiquated, and then you had the rise of the Austrians or the freshwater, whatever the fucking people call them. And it was a lot of mathematical models, all right? And then that shit blew up spectacularly in 2008, all right? Yep. What, what are these freshwater Austrians saying now? Are, are they, what math of, and, and then you had also, not interject, but you had a real rise in behavioral economics, as I understand it. I'm totally, you know, that, that this, economics is not an equation that you, you can predict that 300 million people acting in their own self-interest will produce a certain result of this. Yes, I, I think the behavioralists, uh, to some extent, are, are descendants of Keynes. You know, one of the important conceptual innovations that Keynes has is the main constraint on human activity is not scarcity of resources in Keynesian economics, it's, it's our uncertainty about the future. Since we don't know what the future will bring, what it means to say we're going to act in our own rational self-interest is a very complicated sort of thing that depends on a lot of social factors and, and in Keynes comes to conclude a lot of government policy. Um, now, the, the, the freshwater Austrian tradition, uh, it, you know, it depends on who you talk to because different economists change their minds and, and you, you hear different, uh, different warnings and, and the like. But, but to the extent that people still are, are committed to this general perspective, um, they think that uh, inflation and, uh, and prices are, are governed by the quantity of money in the economy, and that quantity of money is something that is essentially controlled by the Federal Reserve and to some extent uh, the U.S. Treasury, when the government spends money, particularly deficit spending, so they they look at all of these these Biden plans and say, look, we're going to have a lot of inflation. Um, you know, we 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 may have inflation. I don't I don't want to be too overconfident or or um, express a, a, some sort of hubris about our knowledge. The history of economic theory is people having a really great idea for how the world works and being proved wrong by events. But I I don't share that concern, and I think a lot of these same people. Who were arguing for you know that we're, we're facing inflation today we're saying in 2008 2009 that we were on the verge of a hyperinflation crisis akin to what happened in weimar germany in 1923. Um, that obviously didn't happen um, now i think we will probably see some price increases over the next year or two because we're coming out of this pandemic and uh, there are all sorts of supply chain problems so it's just difficult to manufacture things right now um, and when you, you don't have enough supply, that allows demand to get ahead. But I do think one of the things that the Biden administration is doing right is by creating all this consumer demand, by giving people money, essentially, they're creating incentives for the private sector to invest. So the private sector can expand their factories. They can, do, they can do things. They can upgrade their equipment. They can do things that expand the capacity of the economy, which then prevents prices from, from going hog wild. Now, will we see inflation? It's totally possible. Am I really worried about it? No. Uh, and I think the people who are are people who were worried about it uh, excessively uh, 11 years ago. So you talk about it. We just give the people that hadn't read it the many paradoxes of John Maynard Keynes. I mean, you talk. I mean, he's a, he's a very. I mean, sexual paradoxes, every intellectual. I mean, just anything you can imagine. He was one complicated motherfucker. He sure was. I mean, my my editor and I really wrestled with whether to describe him as as gay or bisexual, and I, I, I actually think it makes more sense to think of him as a gay man who married and loved a woman rather than someone who was bisexual. He was gay his whole life, his entire adult life. Right. He, right. he, he was attracted to men 
I think he had maybe two experiences with women before before he married his wife, um, and and yet he just completely fell head over heels for a Russian ballerina named Lydia Lapakova, who's eight or nine years younger than he was at the time, uh, and you know there aren't a whole lot of economists today who hang out with ballet starlets, and, and in the 1920s, <laughs> ballet was was like. Uh, you know, b being a ballet dancer was like being a movie star, uh, but also being, uh, you know, a rock star at the same time. It, it was right, the right. great, you know, big international art form. Uh, and, and the idea that some guy from the British Treasury could saunter into, uh, you know, a ballet hall and, and walk away sweeping the, the, the most famous ballerina in, in the country off her feet... Uh, is very unusual, uh, and uh, and and something that his friends, you know, were, were frustrated by. He he hung out with all of these pacifist artists in World War One, people like Virginia Woolf and Lytton Strachey, who were vehemently opposed to the war, and he basically shared their their worldview and their their set of political beliefs, and yet he was also running war finance for the British government during the war, and without the creative things that he did between 1914 and 1918, the British government would have had to quit the war. They, they would not have been able to afford it. Uh, so he's, he's constantly finding himself in these situations where his abilities and his beliefs may become into tension. And then in other situations where uh, he's, he's just capable of leaving his entire history behind to, to, to change his life, like, like meeting his wife. Uh, I, I came to his work after the, the financial crisis of 2008, expecting to, to, you know, read about this really brilliant economist guy who was really good at math. And instead, he's just this completely unique persona, which uh, who I found once you once you start reading about his life, it's it's hard to stop. Well, Albert, boy, you really capture that, uh, uh, Zach, uh, in the Price of Peace. Uh, two two of his most important. Uh, Latter-day American disciples were John Kenneth Galbraith and Paul Samuelson. Yet they really came at it in a little bit different way or different fashion, didn't they? They did. They were uh, they were friends in in social life. Uh, I think, especially at, at the time, you know, if you were a Keynesian economist in the 1940s and the early 1950s uh, to the Republican Party, that was that was like announcing that you were. Uh, you know, trying to be Chairman Mao's, uh, you know, vice premier or something. It was it was considered extremely radical in, in circles of American politics. Um, but Galbraith and Samuelson had very different, very different political inclinations and different interpretations of Keynes himself. Uh, I, I think Galbraith is a little more philosophical. Samuelson is a little more technical. Samuelson was much more influential on the development of economics. He wrote a textbook in 1948, which basically became the textbook for Econ 101 um, through, it, it really still today, e even the, the textbooks that are taught in Econ 101 today that aren't Paul Samuelson's book are ripoffs of Paul Samuelson's book. So th this is the, the version that we get. And in, in Samuelson's um, sort, of, sort of framing, uh, the, the traditional rules of economics apply. The traditional assumptions apply. We're rational actors maximizing our profits under conditions of, of resource scarcity, where we can't have everything we want, so we have to make choices. But sometimes things just get out of whack for whatever reason, and the government's got to step in and spend a lot of money, run a deficit for a temporary period of time to get everything back on track. Then, then the normal rules of the marketplace will, will, will return. Um, this is a perfectly legitimate reading of the, the sort of different currents 
in the general theory. Um, but it's very controversial among Keynes and his students when, when it comes out, because there are people like John Kenneth Galbraith who see the general theory as an attack on the, the foundations of economics itself. That this point about uncertainty that Keynes makes and about what rationality is changes should change the way that we understand you know, the basic functioning of the market and, and sort of microeconomics, not just this, this big macro picture for things. And so people like Galbraith start formulating, uh, you know, what to I think a lot of people today looks more like sociology or, or social theory than, than economics in a lot of respects, talking about, about different power relations between different sectors of society, how, how labor unions inter interact with corporate executives and the state. Um, it, these are obviously big, important questions, but they're, they're not questions that economists like to deal with in the e economics profession as it d develops after the war. Both of these people become advisors to, to John F. Kennedy, and uh, I think you can, you can look at the economic and social program of Kennedy and, and LBJ as, as sort of a hybrid of, uh, of their, their two worldviews. They, they make perfect sense together within those administrations. Uh, I don't think either of those administrations, you could make heads or tails of them intellectually if you only focused on, on one of those figures. You have one anecdote that captures the towering figure that Keynes was during the war. I interviewed John Kenneth Galbraith uh, uh, several times, and, and to put it mildly, he had a healthy ego. Yeah. And <laughs> when, when he was in his war office, he had a visitor, and uh, they didn't know who it was, and they finally told him it was, it was Lord Keynes. And John Kenneth Galbraith wrote that it was like the Holy Father dropping in on the parish priest. I mean, <laughs> that told you everything about the reputation uh, of the great Keynes, uh, Zach. Well, and in the 1940s, so, so Keynes is working, or Galbraith is working at the Office of Price Administration, and right. Galbraith has this enormously long career in public life. He's, he's with the New Deal and the, you know, the Agriculture Department of, uh, of, of FDR in the, the early 1930s, and by the 1940s, he's, he's trying to keep inflation from getting totally out of control during the war. And, and the guy he, he talks to is, is Keynes, because Keynes has been through the same experience in, in World War I and tells him what to expect and how to deal with it. Um, but, it but of course, it, it's just, it's, it's, a wild, it's a wild moment. His, his secretary is, is saying, I've, I've got this, this man here at the door. He really insists that you want to see him. And he's like, I, I've, too many people are dropping in. There's probably some businessman who's going to give me a hard time about how I'm you know, capping his prices for something. I just don't want to deal with it. Too many headaches. And the secretary's like, it's, it's somebody named Keynes. And he just, you know, Galbraith loses everything. He's like, okay, <laughs> that's one we can talk to. Uh, Zach, one, one final question. Again, I'll turn it back to James. Uh, you, you pointed out earlier, it's a little bit dicey to try to extrapolate what Keynes would think today. But with that caveat, it would, it, it, I would guess that he would be very approving of what Bernanke and Janet Yellen and Jay Powell have done with monetary policy since the great uh, crash of 08 and 09. I, I think so, and I, I think the results are hard to argue with. Uh, you know, uh, there are limits to what you can achieve with, with monetary policy. Um, you know, the, the Great Recession is called the Great Recession because we didn't get all the policy choices right, but I think that, that was on the fiscal side. We just didn't aim big enough um, in, in the Obama years, and then when we realized we needed to aim bigger, the Republican Party basically wouldn't let <laughs> the administration have any more money. So uh, they're having problems, but on the monetary side, you know, people were saying we're going to have hyperinflation because the Fed is doing this. We didn't have it hyperinflation. The, the Fed, uh, you know, has basically been the one engine of, uh, of sane policymaking 
over the past uh, over the past decade, and and frankly, getting increasingly sane under um, under Jay Powell. I mean, I I not somebody who uh, has a lot of enthusiasm for the uh, decision making of the Trump administration, but his his Fed chairman has been excellent, and I think the. Uh, I think the record that you've seen since the coronavirus crash is just very difficult to uh, to argue with, particularly from the perspective that somebody like Keynes would bring to uh, to economics. I mean, you have this so immense social crisis brewing, and the Fed is basically saying, to the extent that we can fix this with money, uh, you can have all the money you want. That <laughs> seems like the Keynesian, uh, the Keynesian. Zach, program. I can assure you, if Trump had known that Jay Powell was going to be as good as he has been, he wouldn't have appointed him. So that was an accidental. Uh, Good move. I, I can't help but note it when you talk about, you know, this great economist uh, or fabled economist marrying a ballerina. I mean, you give Alan Greenspan married Andrea Mitchell, so that's a little bit of a parallel. Yeah, uh, yeah. But James, <laughs> James, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm fine. So, Zach, how old are you? Uh, 38. 38. And how much education do you have? Where are you educated? Uh, University of Virginia. I have a, a, a BA. That's it. And that's it. How does a guy in his 30s with a bachelor's degree says, I'm going to take on the most mm. difficult, complex human being of the 20th century. But, and don't give me some ball shuck shit. I'm just a, like a country boy or something, okay? <laughs> what gave you the confidence to tell yourself that, that you could do this project? It, it turned out to be, in my opinion and every reviewer's opinion, you know, one of the brilliant books. What, what, what says, I'm going to take this shit on. I'm going to get it done. What gave you that? Well, I do want to give you the Ashok's country boy shtick a little bit later, because uh, in my family of of very liberal Southerners, James, you're you're a bit of a folk hero, so we, we will get to that. But oh, he's um, pandering, James. He's pandering. <laughs> but uh, but well, you, know, you, you grow up in the 1990s, and you know your your grandmother is from a small town in North Carolina, and and there aren't a whole lot of people like James on Meet the Press, you know? Uh, hey. So it was, it was, it was, it was quite a thing. He, she would always tell me, you know, Zach, you know, that, that James Carville's a smart man, but, but don't you listen to his wife uh, all the time. Uh, what but, town was she from, Zach? Roanoke Rapids, just, just south of the, uh, that's the Virginia the, border on 95. That's, that's where my, 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 my wife's family was from. Oh yeah. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, uh, but, but that said, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I covered the financial crisis for a, a trade publication called SNL Financial, which is now part of S&P Global. And um, it became very clear that I had learned things as a result of covering that crisis that most people in liberal journalism just didn't know. Um, I don't think the progressive movement, um, the left in general, had been focused on economic policy for a long time until the, the, the crash of 2008. Um, and so, you know, when you when you are going around a newsroom and you're one of only a couple of people in the newsroom who um, know the stuff you're talking about, it does give you a little bit of a, a you know, a, maybe a bit of a big head about it. But but you know, my wife really talked me into this book. Uh, my, my wife is the national editor at the New York Times. Um, she was not when we started on these these books, but she just I was covering the 2016 election and and she told me, you know, you're obviously. This election is driving you crazy. You need something to to focus on that that you enjoy. I, I there are political reporters who love a big campaign, but for me, it was 2016 was like it was like staring into a garbage can for like six hours a day, knowing that eventually the garbage can was going to explode. I, I just found it enormously unpleasant, and and so my wife was saying, if, if you write a book, you won't have to stare into that garbage can. 
And so it wasn't so much a, I, I, I wasn't even, I, didn't, I don't know if I believed I could, I could pull off a, a book that got the kind of reviews that this one has received. I, I mean, I'm very happy with the reception the book has, has, has gotten, but I really just wanted something to do with my time that would distract me from um, the horrors of contemporary American politics at that moment. I, I, and, and when you, there's somebody who's that, who's just as intriguing as, as Keynes is, it's, it's easy to, to sort of lose yourself in, in his life and his era. And, and it's an era, too, that's, that's full, it's full of political conflict and, and, and pretty radical political change, which, to me, it felt, I felt a certain resonance with the present. So you could, you could sort of escape to the past without feeling like you were being escapist. Uh, is, is, is that a, a cop-out of an answer, or is that fair? Uh, it is not at all. It, it seems like a, a very, a very human answer. Yeah, but but man, I I tell you the, the reviews, and and I'm hardly an economics book reviewer, but it, it's stunning. And I, I, my problem with it, I, I I go from one thing to the other. I'll find something. Oh man, I want to find out about this. Oh, what about the you know what happened there? But I I got to tell you. Uh, Congratulations on a, I don't know what's the word, magisterial achievement or whatever the shit they say. But th- th- I, this is one hell of a book, man. You should be very proud of yourself. And your wife should be very proud of you, too. Well, thank you so much, James. Really well, and, uh, and, you, and your family in Roanoke Rapids. Zach, it is, it is, James is absolutely right. It is just a magnificent book. The Price of Peace. Anyone out there who hasn't gotten it or read it, you know, get the book, get it on Kindle. Uh, is there an audio version, Zach? There is. There's an audio version. You can get it wherever audiobooks are, I, I guess, sold. Yeah. They sell Who, t- tell your parents, all, all us Southern Democrats hang in there, all 15 of us. But we- <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Zachary Carter, thank you. You have been a terrific guest. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thank you, man. Good. Good luck to you. Now we want to take a minute, James, to tell you about a delicious meal service that we are falling in love with. Hello Fresh. With that, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. It makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Thanks to Hello Fresh, eating healthier has never been easier with low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian options every week. Hello Fresh offers 25-plus recipes to choose from weekly, from vegetarian meals to craft burgers and extra-special gourmet options all packed with fresh produce sourced directly from farmers. The best part is every recipe is designed and tested by the professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Your whole family will love it. James, I'm going to tell you something that's the truth because that's all we ever tell on this show. HelloFresh sent us some samples in our home, you know, my wife and I, some samples the other day. My, and my daughter called, and I told her within 14 minutes, she was over at our condo saying, I want it all. It's the best stuff in the world. So to my daughter, who's going to have her birthday on Saturday, I got a good start by letting her have some of my HelloFresh. Well, you should buy a subscription for a birthday. Right, right. You know, right. Got, and look, I, I can do this uh, honestly. I, 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 I got it uh, when I was, you know, uh, quarantining last summer. And that stuff is really good. Everything they send you is in season. It's the best they can find. Comes right to your doorstep. I mean, you just got to wash your produce and, and you're ready to go. And it's always like interesting seasonal stuff in there. It, it, it's a terrific product. Go to HelloFresh.com slash War Room 12 
and use code WARROOM12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash WARROOM12 and use code WARROOM12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That'll count as part of my daughter's birthday present, James. For America's number one meal kit, remember, go to HelloFresh.com slash WARROOM12 and use code WARROOM12, that's all one word, for 12 free meals, including free shipping. Hey, James, you know, with some presidents, there are journalists who set the standard. With insights and reliability, it's unsurpassed. Lou Cannon with Reagan, to a degree, Jeffrey Goldberg with Obama. With Joe Biden, even only 100 days, there's no more authoritative reporter than Evan Osnos of The New Yorker. Evan, we welcome you back. We spoke to you five months ago, right after the election. Now, 100 days into the, the Joe Biden administration, is he governing as you expected? Any surprises, any differences? Well, thanks, Al, for the kind words. Uh, it's it's fun to be back with you guys. Um, you know, he is governing as. Look, the honest answer is no. As you know, when I you know when you linger as much time as a person does when they write this kind of stuff about somebody, I sort of came to understand. I think how he was approaching this presidency. I'll tell you some things that have surprised me. Uh, you know, he is. He's he's very grave right now. You know, he is, as he carries himself just physically, he carries himself like a man who is bearing a lot on his shoulders. And, you know, I think the, the, the Joe Biden that you both know and knew for a long time had a certain kind of spring in his step when he was going about this. That was part of his... Uh, what he would call the Irishness of life. And I think that there is a way in which, even though it's going pretty well by most of the metrics, and we can talk about that, um, this, is, this is heavy stuff. And, but to be, to be specific, I'll, I'll tell you what I think is on his mind, because this is sort of how I've been trying to think about it for the last few days. Uh, he is walking through the door of the... Uh, U.S. House chamber on the 99th day of his presidency, right? And it's the same door that was barricaded from the inside by security officers on January 6th. And we all saw those images. And he comes in there and he is he is in a fight for democracy. It's not too grand or melodramatic to say that. I think he really feels that not only, uh, obviously, in the weeks before he was inaugurated, but since then, I, I would say that the biggest surprise probably for him, if I'm being, if I'm going to try to project for a moment, is that what he had said for months would be a, an epiphany which was his shorthand way of saying that he thought that Republicans would reshuffle the pieces, begin to put some distance between themselves and, the, and a losing president, uh, that that just hasn't happened. And that the, I think that the scale and the thoroughness of resistance that he's encountering from the other side uh, was beyond even what he anticipated. And he was not as naive as people like to sometimes imagine. But that, I think, has been the, the surprise, the surprise uh, perhaps for me, is how thorough the resistance has been. You know, after passing his COVID relief bill with just a, on a partisan vote and now all of the pushback on this uh, big domestic initiative and tax hikes, do you think he now has become, uh, does he know the reality? He ain't going to get any Republican cooperation. I mean, this is not the Senate of 1991 or of 1983 or whatever. Uh, do you think that, that he now recognizes that? 
I think he's coming to terms with it. Yeah, and I do think he's sort of grieving over that because I don't think he he really fully appreciated it going in. I mean, he still thought you could peel people off around the edges. You know, he, he thought he saw bits and pieces. Lindsey Graham looked to be falling away from Donald Trump for a few minutes, and of course, he's fallen right back into the fold. Right back into shape, man. Yeah, and and I I, I think that. Look, the numbers are quite stark. I've been looking over the last few days at all of the polls that are coming in, of course, around the 100th day mark. And one of the ones that really strikes me is the poll that shows that Democrats on the whole, 93% of Democrats approve of what he's doing, 7% of Republicans approve of what he's doing. It's an 86-point gap, larger than any other president we've seen, you know, larger even than the early days of Donald Trump. I mean, that is, uh, that is a degree of ideological entrenchment that is that has very little, you know, it has only something to do with Joe Biden. It has a lot to do with the, with the sheer uh, polarization that he's contending with. You know, Evan, as important as I think these initiatives on infrastructure and on child care and on in-care, uh, uh, in-home nursing care and the, and the, and the tax relief, I mean, I, I, would, I think they're all good measures. I haven't looked at them all, but I mean, most of them are. I think the most important thing facing him, and I don't know what happens, is that election reform. Uh, S1, HR1, because I think without that, without that, the Republicans are going to fix the next election. I I say that without exaggeration. You look at Georgia and Arizona, and I know Joe Biden realizes that, and a lot of that depends, I guess, on his personal relationship with Joe Manchin. (laughs) Yep. I mean, it's, you know, they are, after all, two Catholic Joes in their 70s who both sort of imagine that you can get into a room and negotiate. I mean, just, you know, it happens to be that I'm You'll be hearing more about it, but I've been scribbling on 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 the subject of Joe Manchin for a while now. I, I uh, and you know a huge amount really does rest on what on what Joe Manchin ultimately is willing to do. They have a relationship; it's a pretty good relationship, um, but uh, it's it's kind of jaw dropping when you really itemize all the ways in which the the administration's agenda rests on the shoulders of yeah. of a guy like Joe Manchin right now. If I and I'll turn it over to James, if I were Joe Biden right now, I would say, "All right, I, I, I want everything. I'll have to compromise on everything right. else." Joe, give me S one. Let's pass yep. that because otherwise, we are we are to use a colloquial fuck in the next election. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, there's a reason why I started off this subject um, with democracy, which sounds like a slightly grand way of answering what's on Joe Biden's mind. I do think it comes down to nothing smaller than that. I mean, the, right. the question of whether or not we can still maintain public support for the mechanisms of a representative democracy is an open question right now. It's, it's, and it's for, very, for different reasons. You know, for, it's a different answer in the parts of West Virginia uh, where Joe Manchin is than it is for the young people who are gravitating to, uh, you know, gravitating to candidates on the left. It's, but there is just this, there is a, a real liquefaction of confidence in, in democracy and uh, Joe Biden happens to be the person who stepped into the job at the moment when they have to figure out how to shore it up. And I think his view is the way you shore it up is by delivering. Um, James. Go, go, let's, let's talk about Manchin here for a second, because it, it, he is the kind of essential guy. Mm-hmm. He is a senator from a state that a Democrat has not carried a county in since 2008. Yeah. And he's also the 50th vote. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and you have these woke buffoons saying that we ought to go down there and campaign against him. 
I, I, I'm not sure that Joe Manchin minds that very much, by the way. Right. I, yep. I agree with you. They're actually trying to help him solve it. They're just too stupid <laughs> to know it because they're just inherently stupid. But, but do you think that they have the kind of personal relationship that they're going to be able to navigate through some more difficult stuff? I don't know yet. But I do know that Joe Manchin enjoys being the man at the center of the action. And one of the ways that you stay the man at the center of the action is by staying in play. And, uh, you know, they are both, I mean, it, it is sort of notable how much each one of them really does believe that um, you can shave a bit off of things in this direction and in that direction and eventually come up with something that can work. And so th- they're coming at it from a, from a, a strategically kind of tactically similar position. Um, but whether or not, you know, the truth is whether or not they can actually, I don't know yet is the honest answer. And I'm not sure that, you know, one of the things I've discovered about Joe Manchin is sometimes he doesn't know yet. I mean, he is really a guy who, who makes decisions sometimes based on how he thinks the atmospherics are going to play in the moment. So it's a work in progress. But one of Very the great much. things is we're yeah. having the state of the union speech tonight. And I really care as much about the State of the Union as I did the Academy Awards, which is pretty close. (laughs) But what Biden has done for me is he's given me a passport to chill out. I don't ever Mm -hmm. look at my my, my cell phone. I get a screen time report. My my screen time is down 67 percent since October. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, look, I'll, I'll, you know, somebody wrote a good piece the other day that had one ding funny line in there that described his, his posture these days as actively sedative. And, you know, I read that and I thought to myself, well, how many of us have had sleepless nights in need of some medical intervention over the last four years? So a sedative is not a bad thing. But I think sort of more seriously, you know, actually, if you run the numbers, he is averaging no more than six tweets a day which, as we all remember, Donald Trump did over 20,000 tweets in his time. I mean, we don't need to rehash it all. But it has just fundamentally changed the size of politics and presidencies in our minds. It should not take up that much of our dinner table. It just shouldn't. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and it's totally unsustainable. So I think that is – and I will add one thing, which I think it's politically also relevant in the sense that it deprives his opposition of some oxygen. Not entirely. I mean, every, everything that, the, that can be grabbed onto will be grabbed onto. You saw Mitch McConnell describe you know, some of his policies as catnip for, for the base. The truth is, he hasn't really given them all that much when it comes to the, to the comments and the mood, any of that sort of stuff. If it's policy, sure, but that's, but that's what the business they've chosen. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to a couple people uh, in early January who were before the January 6th who were, who, were, who were close to Biden, and they worried about Trump being a dominant force with every news cycle. And I, that really hasn't happened, has it? And the White House, no. I, I would guess you are the expert. The White House doesn't think a lot about Trump, I would guess. No, I, I've been really struck by it. And I think, you know, in some ways the train moves on pretty fast. I, I, I didn't think that Trump himself as a figure was going to be around all that long. I mean, I, what I didn't anticipate was the degree to which depriving him of Twitter really uh, cut him off uh, at the knees. What, of course, has continued to grow and I think is is actually really going to be an issue is Trumpism, by which I can, you know, means a, a whole set of ideas. But it's a, fundamentally it's this... Um, essentially rejectionist approach to the nature of a diverse, inclusive democracy right now. It is, um, you know, I'll give you one data point. I mean, this just caught my attention last week, which is that right now, 
when you talk about the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case, um, something like 75% of Democrats believe the verdict was appropriate, and 43% of Republicans believe that he was wrongfully convicted. You, you know, these, these issues are continuing to grow and build, and I think they're going to continue to grow and build as long as the, the engines... Uh, Donald Trump, in my view, was always a symptom more than he was the creator of these things, and as long as the engines of these problems, including the, you know, the disinformation culture and fundamentally the disparities in, in wealth and income, um, I think that's going uh, to be a fact of our politics, certainly for the next three years of, of Joe Biden's term, and if not longer. Evan, we can't have you on this show without talking about another great area of expertise of yours, which is China. You spent five or six years there. You wrote a great book. I, I spoke to two foreign policy experts re recently and asked, what keeps you up at night? And they both said Taiwan. Yeah. Um, assess that danger. Yeah, this is one that has come up faster than you might have predicted, certainly five years ago. The, the, you know, the running thesis has been... China's not going to do anything to disrupt the status quo in Taiwan as long as it wants to continue building its economy and building its military and so on. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want to get into a fight with the United States. Recently, the head of Indo-Pacific Command was testifying in front of Congress and said something that snapped everybody to attention, which is he said that he thought there was a chance of a conflict over Taiwan within the next six years. And... That is a, that's a function of the fact that the, some of the calculations within Beijing have really changed, and they've changed partly on a, on a reading of us and a reading of our posture. There is a fear in China. Uh, well, there's, there's, one th there's a form of confidence, which is that they do believe that we are, that we are fundamentally in disarray because of these internal divisions. Um, that may not be wrong. But the second piece is, is probably a misreading and could be a catastrophic misreading, which is they think that we would be... Uh, we, that we wouldn't we wouldn't respond in the event of an invasion of Taiwan, and I think that is that is something that really doesn't understand where the U.S.-China relationship has moved in Washington just over the last couple of years. There is much more of a sense that um, you know, it's not clear how the U.S. would respond, but there's a feeling among many on both the left and the right that that if the U.S. effectively loses Taiwan, that that will be the end of American primacy in the national security world and that that wouldn't be allowed to happen and, and of course the danger i mean i mean they're not going to have a cross-channel invasion it's not going to be like d-day they would try to cut off sea and air traffic and cyber war and maybe invade a few islands um and i i think you're you will forget more than i'll know but you're absolutely right america would have to respond but boy it'd be tough wouldn't it it would be a disaster i mean this is um the chinese military has grown a lot faster, particularly in the neighborhood, than we really were paying attention to. In all those years that we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were steadily building up their ability to defend their own borders, and they would, of course, define their borders as including Taiwan. And so by now, it's generally recognized that uh, we would not be guaranteed to win in a fight along their borders. And um, it would be there's a you know good reading for folks who are looking to terrify themselves is this new novel called 2034, which is written by uh, James Stavridis, who was the great uh, NATO commander, commanded ships all over the world, yeah. and Elliot Ackerman, who's a Marine who is also a great novelist. And the two of them came together, and I, I, I did a you know did some stuff with them recently on the radio. But they're just it's a really impressive and quite sort of high fidelity description of what a cascade of mistakes would look like that could lead to a global 
catastrophe around Taiwan, of all places, you know, something we haven't talked about for, for, for many years. Listen, you have been a fabulous guest as always. You are our resident expert. Uh, and I have one favor, say hi to your mom and dad. And Thanks, uh, Evan Osnos, thank you. The very best. Uh, thank you so much. My great pleasure. Hey, James, two good questions, interesting questions from Terry in Florence, Montana, and Mary in Alton, Illinois. They want us to keep up the great work, and they say, if James runs for president, he's got my vote, and as a centrist, Mary says, I agree with you on nearly every time your ideas would be very welcome on a ticket. So, James, are we going to lose you on War Room? <laughs> I think you're pretty safe. Uh... Uh, next, uh, what is it? The election is going to be 2024. I'll be uh, 80 be, years old. You'll uh, be younger uh, than yeah. Joe Biden. Uh, yeah, I, I am. Yeah, at least he's younger than Biden. That would be my slogan. <laughs> That's a great slogan. Well, Terry well, and... I, I, pre I appreciate the compliment. Terry and Mary, uh, you know, you may have to wait, but keep listening and you'll still get that wisdom and at least they'll give a good guise to what the Democrats should do in 2024 as well as 2022. Right. Melissa in Mesa, Arizona says, please tell me, Alan James, what is going on in Maricopa County, Arizona? These Republicans are pissing me off with the ongoing big lie recounts. I'm worried about my vote. Melissa, you ought to be. What they are doing there is not only outrageous now, they have the, the right-wing Republican state legislature. This is the party, of course, that disowned John McCain and Jeff Flake and the governor and everybody else. They really are crazy. Kelly Ward, the chairman, is just a conspiracy buff off the charts. They have brought in some kind of group that no one's heard of, doesn't have any expertise, presumably is right-wing, to inspect the Maricopa results from the last election, and they have the authority apparently to do that. They can't change the election. But I'll tell you why you should be worried, Melissa, because this is just, this is a leading indicator, a harbinger of what the Republicans plan to do with the change in these voting laws. The attention that, that, that really has been missing from what Georgia and Arizona have done is they have given the state legislature control over a lot of the voting mechanism. And I can tell you with an absolute certainty that if they had had that authority last November, Joe Biden would have had both Arizona and Georgia stolen from him. So this is a really, even though it won't change anything, you ought to be worried, Melissa. This is a really dangerous precedent, what they're doing. James. Absolutely. And they just showed you their whole card for the future. This is going to be the whole thing. And, and these, you know, voting wars, counting wars, that they're going to go on. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm very militant on this. I think Democrats should be very militant on it. This, this, is, this is bad stuff they're trying, really bad. And you're exactly right on the whole thing. Frank in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, James wants to say Bush AK-43. My question is, uh, why is the news media? He, I think he actually means means. Oh, let me let me get my my my. Yeah, it's forty three. Why is the news media giving this criminal airtime? I, I I would object to that term. I would criticize him, but you wouldn't use that term. But James, is, is it right that the best thing that happened to forty three was forty forty five because he bumped him up for the bottom? The best thing that happened to all of them. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, when you forget everything, it's just like thinking he had rid of the assault weapons ban. I mean, forget you had two wars, you had a you know major catastrophic recession, you had God knows what not. But you're right that they all look they all look like Franklin Roosevelt, you know, compared to what we had. But it's a, it's a good observation. A, a lot of people have noticed the same thing. But, you know, and he, he's painting and, you know, he's done a little rehabilitation there. And, you know, people are just exhausted from Trump and just don't want to relitigate Bush right now. Right. He, 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 he's an appealing uh, person. Uh, he was an yeah. appealing person before 2000. Uh, his problem is not his appeal now or back then. It was that he had a poor record as president. Uh, and, and, yeah. and so anyway, Frank, uh, yeah, as I say, I, I, I wouldn't call him a criminal, but I think you're on point about uh, he's getting too much of a free ride. But that's Trump. Right. Um, but go ahead, James. No, no. I'm, yeah. I'm, but I'm, I pretty much agree. Just been, he was massively wrong on a massive number of things. Lynn in Brownville, Maine. I'm not, you know, I've been to Maine a lot. I'm not quite sure where Brownville, Maine is, but I'm sure it's a charming little town because every little town in Maine is a charming little town. But Lynn asked, she said, she's so mad there isn't a 9-11 type investigation for the January 6th insurrection. If nothing happens soon, can Merrick Garland make it happen? Should his team be a group completely outside politics? No, there can be criminal actions and justice will do that. I'm sure they'll pursue it very aggressively. But this drives me crazy. There ought to be an independent commission. It ought to be, Congress ought to authorize it. It ought to be bipartisan, four and four, five and five. The mandate ought to be quite simple. What happened on the assault on the Capitol on January the 6th? And uh, Bush could name the members. And if our constitutional scholar, Walter Dellinger, says it passes mustard, subject to a congressional veto, uh, but the idea that we are now, what, uh, James, 114 days from what happened and there hasn't been anything is just outrageous because those commissions serve a purpose. They can get into things that the criminal law does not get into, and the Congress is so bitter and polarized that all they'll do is fight over it. So I, 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 I'm upset about this. I agree with you, Lynn. Yeah, and, and of course... Kevin McCarthy and Republicans say, oh, yeah, well, let's investigate Minneapolis, let's investigate Portland and Seattle, and let's investigate street violence. Why you just want to do this? You, you know, and, of course, Liz Cheney stepped all over him when she said, no, well, it ought to be basically Liz Cheney agreed with you. And, of course, they don't want to investigate anything. They just want to throw as many roadblocks into it as they possibly can because the truth for them is more than inconvenient. And you might have, you know, there's potential that people believe, and certainly not proven, that, that there were certain members coordinating with these uh, seditionists. Uh, that's something I really want to know the answer to. Uh, maybe law enforcement can give us that answer at some point. They can give us some, but if they didn't engage in criminal activity, they may not be, they certainly won't be charged. I mean, I, I don't know if they did or not. And they're not necessarily going to be reported. I mean, there were things that came out in that 9-11 commission report that certainly weren't available otherwise. And I think uh, I'm all for a vigorous prosecution uh, of these thugs, these terrorist thugs. And if they can implicate any anybody who helped them on the inside, absolutely. But you, you know, you really need a commission to talk about why it happened, how it was set up, what the consequences were, what Trump's involvement was. 
And uh, I, I, I despair that we've gone so long without it happening. I really do think Congress ought to try to pass legislation. And the Republicans want to try to block it, say we're going to have Biden point a distinguished commission like 9-11, and you can veto it if you want to. Then I think it shows their hypocrisy. But maybe that's wishful thinking. Yeah, yeah that probably is. And, you know, the you know, old Jack Nicholson, a few good men, you don't want the truth because you can't handle the truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's pretty applicable here. But uh, you're and, and I think the, the prosecution has been very aggressive and will continue to be very aggressive here. Yeah, no. A lot. I agree. Richard in Evanston, Illinois. That's a great town. Abner Mikva, yeah, who, who married my wife, uh, who married us, uh, represented Evanston, Illinois in Congress. Uh, Richard, is it way too early? He said, I know it's way too early. I know it's way too early. Uh, yeah, it is, Richard. It's like uh, three years and nine months too early. But assuming President Biden doesn't seek re-election, and he assumes that Kamala Harris doesn't run either, though Richard said he loves her and was an early supporter. I think that's unlikely. I think she'd probably try to run. Which you know, five or so or three or four moderate Democrats might be convincing candidate, candidates for 2024. Well, uh, first of all, I think Harris will run if Biden doesn't. I mean, she's run for president before, and that's always a, a pretty good indicator of where your pit is, and probably doesn't want to be vice president again for four years. But uh, that's, I've kind of given it some thought, and I, 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 I don't know. Uh, I, I suspect that Buttigieg would probably try it again. I, I don't know if it would have a uh, much different result. Um, and from the Senate, and Warren would be pretty pretty old. All right, she's... Uh, she's almost as old as we are, James. Yeah. I, you know, it, 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 it's a really uh, good question. I'm, uh, I'm sure Andrew might take a crack. I mean, he's got some problems, so that's not even a given. Um, boy, I, I, I'm stumped. Richard, we're going to stay on that. I would just note that if we were at the same stage in 1989, I don't think the odds on Bill Clinton being the next president were that high. If we were at the same stage in 2005, I don't think anybody thought Barack Obama was going to be the next president. And I don't think uh, uh, four years ago, most people thought that Joe Biden had any chance. So my only point of that uh, boring history lesson is a lot can happen in two or three years. People will emerge. Maybe some people were not even on the radar screen now. So right. And, and, I, you know, somebody's I'd have to look at the cat, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to. You know, you'll see when something starts to emerge. It, it, it's going to be, you know, the pressure to nominate a female is probably going to be pretty big, but it was big in 2020 and it didn't matter. I, it's a good question. It's one we should keep revisiting, and I, I really don't have a good answer to it. Richard, we're going to stay on this, and I would point out, this would not be my candidate, but AOC will be 35 in 2024. Um, Duncan in Vancouver, Canada says, if eliminating the Electoral College is a pipe dream, wouldn't repealing the Reapportionment Act of 1929 and increasing the number of representatives from 435 to a much higher number be a more realistic way of alleviating the influence of the Electoral College? 
Yeah, it would be. That act also says that states have a lot of leeway in the size and shape and everything of uh, of an election. I think that bill, the House passed H.R. 1 and now seen for the Senate S-1, the really critical Election Reform Act, addresses gerrymandering to some extent. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure my favorite approach would be to increase the size of the House. Uh, I just wish it were apportioned more fairly. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I also will tell you, in all honesty, Duncan, it ain't going to happen. Yeah, we got 10 years of hell coming up. I mean, first of all, the, the woke stuff that killed us in these congressional races is, is uh, you know, cost of state legislative races. Uh, they got reapportionment. We didn't pick up very much. The, the inherent, there's just an inherent bias against Democrats, the whole thing just because of the way that we, we live and located. And this it's going to be on the radar screen for another 10 years. It just is. And it, it's distressing. That's, that's why you and I were so into these state legislative races and the fact that we didn't win uh, probably any of them. Maybe we won one that I don't know about, but we did very, very poorly. Yeah, we won a couple seats, but we didn't take control of any place uh, and we didn't uh, take away... Republican control, I don't think, anywhere, and they made a, they made a huge effort. I mean, uh, Kelly Ward-Burton right. and her people just did a fantastic job. They raised lots of money. They targeted the right people, but you're right. They just caught, they, you know, they got caught in an undertow. And, the faculty uh, lounge. Yeah, that was a big That's part of it. They were there. I, I, yeah, I think the faculty lounge and some of the, some of the people Trump turned out <clears throat> to vote for him voted down ballot straight ticket, and some of the people who turned out to vote against him uh, ticket split, and I think that right. hurt too. But we talked about right. that, you know, last week with uh, with with Jim Margolis. This is the final question, and it's it's a repeat of some questions we've had before, James. But I've got to ask it because Rebecca, who's asking the question, is from Donnybrook, Dublin, Ireland. Anyone from Donnybrook, D Dublin, Ireland, Ireland deserves to have her question asked. She said, "I vote absentee in Broward County, Florida." And I've heard James say he thinks Florida should or could go blue because they voted yes in increasing minimum wage and restoring voting rights. My question is, besides those two exceptional situations, how do you see this happening in a state that embraces Trump, DeSantis, Getz, and the likes? How can the Democrats get this effectively done? Rebecca over there in Donnybrook is frustrated, James. Well, and first thing, the last Senate race we lost by, I don't know, 8,000 votes. A state like Florida, you don't lose a race by 8,000 votes and say we can't win. And you're right. Yeah. I, I point out with almost two-to-one majorities for felons voting and for the minimum wage. I, I, and it's a difficult state. I understand that. But what, what really hurt us in Miami-Dade, we, we actually didn't do that poorly in the rest of outside of Miami-Dade. We did awfully in Miami-Dade. And eight, there's not a person I talk to that does not think that the defund the police message just killed us. And and Venezuela, I, uh, uh, yeah, and uh, and in, in just it's just a, a un misunderstanding. But we just got to run better people and smarter campaigns in Florida. I, and first of all, you can't be stupid to abandon a state of that importance. And there's no reason to abandon it. There's a reason that we can win it, and we got to you know, re-engineer our messaging a little bit, but I, I think it's viable in the future. Well, and, and to start with, I don't know if Democrats can win, but they absolutely should not give 
uh, Ron DeSantis or Marco Rubio uh, an effective free ride in 22. They ought to vigorously contest those races. And, uh, you know, they might win, but certainly that's a predicate of 2024, you know. Right. We'll see. Right. Boy, they will. I, those questions are good. I mean, all the way from Montana to Ireland, uh, the only bad news in those questions is that they couldn't draft James as a presidential candidate. But uh, <laughs> uh, otherwise, it worked great. And keep them coming because we love your questions. You really make us yeah. think. And you could see a couple of them, you stumped us. We'll get back to you on it, though. Yeah, my friend in Ireland go to County Monaghan. There's a lot of Carvilles up there. If you go in a cemetery, you see a lot of them, too. <laughs> it's I, right on the border with Northern Ireland. James, I'd rather see a live Carville than a cemetery Carville <laughs> any day. I think I would, too. <laughs> Okay, James, let's go to our outrages of the week. It's so hard to choose. There are so many. Uh, and I'm going to echo something that you've said. I disagree with Liz Cheney probably 80, maybe 90% of the time on issues, but I admire her courage and integrity in standing up to the carnage that Trump has inflicted. And she supports a much-needed independent commission to look into the January 6th, the first violent assault on the Capitol since the British in the War of 1812. She rejects efforts by the Trump sycophants to dispute any mandate by looking into unrelated matters like Black Lives Matter. My outrage, though, my outrage is Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader. At their GOP retreat, McCarthy complained that Cheney was distracting from a forum about policy, about policy. Now, Kevin McCarthy is a consummate politician, you know, a pretty shrewd one. But he always has his fingers up checking the latest political currents, which is why he panders now to Trump and the hate monders. On policy, he's a cipher, as deep as a birdbath. Liz Cheney will forget more about substance than Congressman Birdbath ever knows or cares about. Shame on you, Kevin McCarthy. My outrage is, is evident. And it, it's that this, we have produced, science has produced, I give Trump some credit, he put some money up for it, two stunning vaccines. I mean, not good vaccines. I mean, great vaccines. Great vaccines in terms of safety, in terms of efficacy, what they call it. You know, they're, they're effective. They're the ticket out of this. And like these stupid people, I mean, really stupid people won't get the vaccine. There's 150 million people that have had it. Right? It's not, there's nothing left to wait to see. These things are safe. There's real-time studies that show that they are as effective as they thought they were going to be. They're effective so far against variants. And, but as long as you don't take it, the vaccine's gonna, uh, the virus is going to keep mutating. If, for God's sakes, I don't, there's probably nothing that you can tell these people because by this time, if you have said, I'm not going to get vaccinated with the exception of maybe some rare medical condition you have, you're, you're really you're hurting the country. You're really hurting the country in a, in a deep and fundamental way. This is so goddamn stupid. Just, I could cry. Well, James, on, on that point, a number of hospitals and other places have said, hey, you have got to have the vaccine if you want to work here in person. And I think some law firms and some businesses will do that, and I'm all for that. That's not denying you anything. It's just saying you can't endanger other people. And if more and more places do that, I think that's easily passes any legal test. I mean, you're, you, you, you can infect others. 
then I think some of those people may have to rethink their stupidity. I, I hope, but but there's an, there's enough hesitancy or whatever they call it. There's enough people that don't want to take it that may you may let this thing go on longer than it has to go on, and the longer it goes on, the, the greater the chance that it's going to you know some transmission is going to mutate into something just awful. The, right. You cut down a number of transitions, you cut down a number of mutations. It's not that hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just too stupid for words. Yeah. Jesus, I met a guy had a financial transaction. He told me he had a heart attack. He's like fifty one years old. He looked up, looked like a guy that probably had a heart attack. And I said, "You got the vaccine?" He said, "I'm gonna wait and see." I I, I, I literally lost it. I said, "What what are you waiting to see?" There's 150 million people have taken this. They're walking around you everywhere. There's nothing, there's nothing to wait and see. So maybe we just got to keep pushing it. Yeah. Let's hope. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we would really appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsor, HelloFresh. I love HelloFresh. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another program as we continue our War Room planning. 